This is episode 77 of The New Disruptors, Wedding March to One's Own Offbeat Drummer with Ariel Meadow Stallings. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. Hi, folks. Before we start the podcast proper, I wanted to tell you about something new we're trying with advertising at The New Disruptors. We have a variety of hard costs and the investment of time to make this podcast happen. Sponsorships underwrite my ability to make this show. Now, we've tried a bunch of things, including Patreon, which is still ongoing, and advertising, and and we're looking at other models, too. But advertising has been the principal funding mechanism, and it goes in waves. You may have noticed in other episodes, sometimes we have a lot of sponsors, sometimes none at all. And I think that's partly because the show is eclectic. I think listeners like this, and I like making a show like this, but because I don't talk to the same kind of creator or business every week, bigger advertisers tend to get varied results. Different people listen every week, and so there's a different response. It's not all graphic designers every week or or any other demographic. So what we're going to try is something new with the help of Cards Against Humanity. They're going to underwrite what I'm calling indie ads for artists, makers, programmers, and other creators who have a solo or small business We're going to offer a subsidized ad rate of $50 for 30 seconds or $100 for 60 seconds. Cards Against Humanity is buying an ad slot in every episode in which we have indie ads to let us charge less and try this out. We think these kinds of companies are more likely to offer products that listeners of any episode would be interested in, and by setting the price low, it makes it easier to make a return. We're also trying to put our money where our mouth is. We support independence in this podcast. We tell you how to go it alone. And by charging a lower ad rate with Cards Against Humanity's help, it means we can help support both the companies we talk to and others in the field at the same time. To learn more about indie ads, visit newdisrupt.org, where you'll find a post with more detail. Or if you'd like to place an ad, go to newdisrupt.org slash indie dash ads, or just click the indie ads link on any page on the site at the left. So thanks to Max Temkin and Cards Against Humanity for making this possible. You can find them at cardsagainsthumanity.com, where you can now order their products directly, including their 2012 and 2013 special packs in which all profits are donated to charity. Also, thanks this week to the folks behind Heat, a game that's being kickstarted, and Andrew Ferguson. You'll hear from them later in the episode. And one more thing, sorry, I've launched another podcast, this time about the future of publishing. It's going to have a rotating set of regular co-hosts and guests. We'll talk about everything to do with analog and digital publishing across all media. We're launching with a six-episode pilot season. The first episode is The Netflix of Books. The podcast is called The Periodicalist, and you can find us at periodicalist.com. And now, let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that says... You don't have to get married to your work, but your work can be about marriage. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. Ariel Meadow Stallings is the proprietor of several offbeat sites about weddings, home, and life, and families under the rubric Offbeat Empire. She started the wedding site in 2007 to promote a book on creative alternatives for brides, which built an audience hungry for more of the same. She obliged and has been building her empire full-time since 2009. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're doing an in-person event at Swank Office Sharing Space, too, which is very popular in Seattle. So this is part of the whole... uh, part of the theme of your business too is you don't have a fixed uh, office in which all of your employees gather 
Right. Yeah. We all work remotely. So my, uh, I have a little home office in the corner of my one bedroom condominium that I share with my family. I have an editor in Los Angeles who uh, works on her couch in front of her television, which would drive me insane. I have another editor in Omaha. I have an editor outside of Chicago who, who toils away in her living room. So we all work remotely. And um, I found for me, it's really important to get out of the house and get into a co-working space. So I remember what it's like to talk to adults and see people face to face. That's right. You hear the buzz of activity, the hive of activity around us. And uh, well, uh, you know, you're a local Seattle business person and the offbeat empire, I see you pop up in a lot of different places because Seattle is, we're not as, uh, we're not as alternative as Portland is, is rumored to be. I've recorded many podcasts in Portland. I know a lot of people there. And Portland is seen as sort of the, you know, it's this slowly alt place that's kept the vibe, even though it's changing rapidly. In Seattle, Seattle is more sedate and whatever. But can you define what offbeat means? Because it's, I mean, I realized, you know, even people listening, it's like the hipster thing. There's all these like right. memes, which don't actually reflect people's lives. What's, what is offbeat? Yeah. You know, I, I always joke that if I'd been a little bit more careful about how I was naming uh, the book, which then led to the brand and the whole empire, uh, I probably wouldn't have used the word offbeat. I would have used something more like authentic because that's really the mission of all the sites is not supporting people in being weirder than they want to <laughs> be or um you know that that you need to be quirkier than thou or it somehow um that anything mainstream is bad the idea is just that we're trying to support people whether it's in wedding planning or home decor or families or their career we're trying to support people in building a life and a wedding or a family that reflects who they are and if they're a weird crazy, quirky person, then it might be a crazy, weird, quirky wedding or family or lifestyle. But um, we actually support people all along. We call it the spectrum of offbeat. So it's it's more about trying to find uh, not having to go with cookie cutter options, not walking right. in and having the wedding take off away from you, or you're planning a house design and you buy at Ikea a showroom. They're like, great, here, I want the Ikvar, and you check a box and your right. house looks exactly like the catalog. It's for people who want to make the choices for themselves. Right. And sometimes those choices are totally mainstream options. We actually just did an article on Offbeat Home and Life about um, a young woman whose uh, partner was dealing with a disability that meant they needed to move abruptly so that he could pursue treatment. And they needed to basically furnish a house in four hours. And so where did they go? Well, they went to Ikea. Yeah. She was like, here's why we, how we managed to create a house that felt comfortable to us and not like we were living in a corporate housing, you know, temporary housing, even though our options and time was limited. And we did it at Ikea and it felt okay. So, you know, really it's not about, you know, oh, you have to have some sort of handcrafted artisanal fill in the blank, but just uh, you want to be able to feel like, uh, the life that you're inhabiting reflects who you are, whatever that may be. And that may be, I needed something quick and fast and Ikea was there. I also want to point out last night, I know that last night, the night before we're recording, uh, we had a, mar a marvelous offbeat wedding in Seattle. You may have heard of at the Seattle fusion talks. Oh yeah. I heard about <laughs> this. Yes, the end of it was a couple got married, a, a singer and it person got married at the end of the Seattle fusion. And I thought that is the part, it's the perfect mingling in Seattle of tech and culture. Totally. Yeah. And business, everything else. Totally. So it was great. Lovely people from what I understand. I one of them a little bit. And that's yeah. Terrific. Yeah. And that's where we're all about trying to support people in 
in creating something that feels right to them. And whether that's a potluck wedding in their backyard or whether that's, you know, I really put a lot of thought into this. I've been saving money for years and I want to do the party of a lifetime, whatever, for Disneyland's goth day, blah, blah, whatever. Like people, there's sometimes some conflating between offbeat and low budget or DIY and we're those things too. But some people like to save up and do a big splurge. And as long as that's reflecting some thought and intent that they've put into that decision, that's cool with me. I'm not going to tell them how they can spend their money. Well, you know, my wife and I got married in a former uh, dirigible hangar, of course. And, uh, <laughs> and there some other details. Maybe I'll put a link into the photos in the show notes. But uh, we got married in 2002. And I feel like these resources, we were looking for more things that were outside the mainstream uh, industry. I mean, this is the thing, like the funeral funeral industry, the wedding industry Absolutely. is an industry and all these memes and things you're supposed to do. So you wrote a book that came out in 2007. What led you down a path to try to codify some things in a book for people? To help yeah. Them? You know, it is a strange, twisted story. I got Excellent. married in 2004. And like you, I went looking around, you know, the mid 2000s, Mid, the mid-O's internet to see what I could find. And really at that time, there was IndieBride.com, which was kind of a forum and a few articles, but not a blog and not updated regularly. And then there was The Knot, which is still around, which is kind of more thought. of a mainstream uh, wedding planning tool. And uh, I didn't really like wedding planning. It was stressful and challenging. And I knew I wanted to have this particular kind of wedding. And I didn't want to worry about all this stuff I was supposed to worry about. So I planned my wedding, got married in 2004. It was lovely. And then I had been working with a literary agent in New York to try and figure out, okay, I want to write a book. I, you know, I've, I've written for magazines. I've written on the web. But to be a real writer, I need to write a book. I need to have a book published by someone in New York who believes in me, right? It was very, I really had this very clear picture in my mind of sort of old school media. I need to be chosen and then I'll finally be a real writer. So I'd been working with this agent for a year at that point, trying to figure out what could I write that someone in New York would buy. <laughs> and uh, we kept bumping up against... We kept bumping up against a lot of, uh, I'd have an idea and she'd say, yeah, no, can't sell that. I'd have another, oh, well, uh, left coast landscapes, uh, subcultures of hippies, weirdos, and freaks. Nope, can't sell that. No one's going to buy that book. So at a certain point, we stumbled across this idea of, oh, I'd been planning my wedding and I'd written about it a bit on my personal blog. And what if I wrote a wedding book? And of course, the irony here of the person who didn't care about planning her wedding being like, are you kidding me? This is the book you want me to. She's like, oh, I can sell that yeah, book. Yeah. I can sell that book in a hot second. I was like, oh, God, this is going to be like my legacy as a writer is I'm writing a book about weddings. But the pull towards actually being published kind of overwhelmed my snootiness about not wanting to be a kind of, you know, it was sort of a service book, half memoir, half service book. And really, this is going to be, well, I guess I'm going to write about a wedding book. So wrote the book in 2005 and 2006, and then launched the website in 2007 to support the book. And then realized, as you mentioned, there was a big shift after six months when I realized nobody really cared about this book that had been my yeah. dream. Oh my God, I'm finally going to write this book and I'll finally be a real writer. And what it came down to was the website was immediately seeing significant traffic. And um, I mean, I think within two, three months, it was already... Was it? I think within three months, it was 20,000 unique visitors a month, which oh, wow. for a brand new website, yeah. I was like, how is this even yeah. happening? And 
I would try and end every post with a little call to action. Oh, and you'll find more in my book, Offbeat Bride, Creative Alternatives for Independent Brides. No one bought the book. No, no one, one cared the about book. the book. But this is 2007. People are still buying books. The economy hadn't collapsed. And you're, did your publisher pay for a tour or you, you, funded a t- you did a self-funded tour? You know, they did, they did not pay for a tour. They did help me organize a few mm-hmm. events, which were incredibly sparsely attended. I mean, my event in San Francisco, literally my own editor, who was based yeah. in the Bay Area, did not attend the event. So the events were just, I mean, you know, every, every author has their own sad stories about, about uh, book readings gone wrong. Yeah. And mine were, you know, oh, well, thank goodness my four friends came because no one else is interested. But it's tricky. A wedding is, a, you know, I often talk about wed- a wedding having come through that and having run businesses and so forth myself, as you have now, is like a wedding is like starting a small company. It's like a limited term Absolutely. duration company and then it's over. And so you get all this domain expertise, which then goes away, although you managed to leverage right. it right. into a business. And I'm thinking the books, I, I hadn't thought about that, but actually doing events around a book are tricky because you have to catch people at exactly the right moment in the cycle that they're receptive right. to buy a book as opposed to the continuous stream of people you might have at other times. Exactly, exactly. So I caught, you know, a few dozen people uh, in spring of, of 2007, but it was immediately clear that, okay, if only four or five people were coming to these readings, all of a sudden 20,000 people were reading the website. Yeah. And when I asked them, oh, you know, are you buying the book? They were like, well, no, sorry, well, but need, the website is free. They need one, well, they need one thing, right? They don't necessarily want the... Well, and I know this is... My wife went through some of this. So she's not a wedding book or magazine buyer, but she right. wound up through friends giving her stuff who just got married. We have this stack. I think there's still a box in the basement that's like bridal magazines and whatever. A lot of those were cautionary tales for her. We're right. not going to do right. this. We're not going to do yeah. that. But it was still, there's this whole amount of material you acquire and then you hand on too. So right. one person buys your book, their wedding's over. They're like, oh, I know you like interesting things here. Yeah. Have the copy. It gets handed to 20 people. And I've actually seen some very sweet reader submitted photos of the inside cover of one of my books with a whole list of names. Oh. You know, oh, Maria got this in 2008 Wonderful. and then passed it on to Susan and Anyway, it's very sweet. It doesn't help you with sales, but it does help you with an audience. No, and you know what? At a certain point, very early on, I realized that the percentage that I was getting from my book, which basically amounted to about a buck per book, um, was nothing compared to what I could be making from advertising. So even as much as I'm like, yay, rah, rah, buy my book, even I very quickly shifted to, "Uh, you don't have to buy the book, actually, if you just... (laughs) Tell your friends about the website. I'll make more money from advertising in a day than I'll make from the book in a month. So That's great. And you were at Microsoft at that time. Oh, my gosh, so you had yes. A day, you had a day job, and this is occupying some amount of your you know, copious free time. I know how they don't work you at Microsoft, right? It's, it's a very easy call. <laughs> well, and I there. really lucked out because I, um, I had a part-time permanent job. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Was, a, I was a full-time employee. I was an FTE, but yeah. I only worked three days a week. It oh was an amazing – those jobs That's don't exist yeah, anymore. Yeah, I was going to say. Right. <laughs> then you become a permatemp or you're a full-time. There's yeah, those jobs don't exist anymore, but it was a very sweet time. Mm-hmm. So you actually had the time to devote to building this without having to kill yourself between work and, and whatever. Yep. So it became clear to you that there was, there's something here to uh, a, a vein to mine. And uh, I know that's always the, the scaling problems. Like you go from, all right, I have no expense. I've got like hosting bills. Maybe you hire a developer, you are a developer, you do some design or you hire like these things, eh, minor, you can fund it out of this and that. Yep. And then you're like, okay, we want to turn that dial. What do we do to turn the dial up? Yep. Where did that dial rotation take place? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because from the very beginning, I was working with a good friend who's a developer. Uh, so we sort of 
taught each other. She would teach herself how to code what I needed her to do. It was amazing. She went on to, she just left me last year to go work for Automatic. So oh, I love them. Yeah. I still miss her, but she's working for the small world, people yeah. who are making WordPress. So it's, yeah. it was a fair graduation for her. Oh, because she figured out how to make WordPress plugins, right? So she, she became a wizard and then... She's basically a, a total WordPress That's wizard. Awesome. So um, I had a developer with me kind of right from the beginning and working from home in Virginia. And then, you know, the growth actually was something that I did almost, this is strange to say, but almost more because I was lonely. Mm -hmm. You know, editorial and content work online is, it's fun. And of course, there's a conversation that you can have with people in the comments. But at a certain point, it's very isolating. And, you know, I'd, I'd hit some sort of challenge with a comment moderation situation or a, a post gone wrong. And of course, my poor long-suffering husband does not want to hear me rambling about some comment traversy. So I actually first started bringing on interns, editorial interns, in part because I thought, oh, you know, I can mentor them and they can help me. But in part just because I was freaking lonely. It mm -hmm. was it was lonely work. So um, most of the growth was editorial because initially I had this idea that I was just going to roll out websites. There was going to be offbeat bride and then there was going to be offbeat families and then there was going to be offbeat home. And then maybe there was going to be offbeat work and then offbeat, like it was yeah. just going to be this, um, content vertical that once mm -hmm. I, I figured out the business model for offbeat bride, that then I could apply that model to all these other content channels and, uh, launched offbeat. It was originally offbeat mama launched in 2009, a couple months before my son was born. And within six months, it became clear that it was actually not making any money. Oh no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and then I kept working on that. And then at a certain point, the next site, okay, we're going to do offbeat home in 2011. And I looked around at the end of 2011 and realized I built this expansion model and then we're adding an editor for each site. And ultimately the additional sites were not able to replicate Offbeat Bride's success yeah, because huge. Offbeat Bride is in the wedding industry, mm -hmm. which is a whole separate industry. And that, yeah, there's a family products industry, right? Diapers and baby carriers and blah, blah, blah. But it's not the same as the wedding industry. People yeah. spend money, family money, very differently than they spend wedding money. So um, I actually, at that point, sort of veered off and and capped the growth at three sites and in fact have since shifted offbeat families into it's just an archive at this point it's mm -hmm. no longer producing new posts so this growth model of oh i'm gonna just have all these different sites about all these different offbeat topics i actually shifted at a certain point because the the revenue model that i'd established with offbeat bride was not translating to other topics i went through the same thing on a totally different area which was Wi-Fi. I had a very popular Wi-Fi blog in the mm -hmm. early 2000s when people were still trying to sort it out. None of the hardware worked, none of the software worked, no right. one knew what the philosophy was uh, or the, the underpinnings were. It was this complicated thing. And so I'm like, great, this site's doing great. I'm going to launch uh, Cell News and Municipal Wire. Like I launched right. five other sites, all with myself as the editor, all with simple templates right. and devoted very much of time to them. And none of them ignited at all because yeah. you, that, you find that one thing, and this is a typical thing. You're like, I have this great idea. Now I want to replicate the success. Totally. Sometimes it works, but sometimes there's sometimes a unique thing. Yeah. Where the money is for advertising. And it's, for it's very humbling, of course, to have sort of this vision for growth and then realize I started calling it the loving euthanizations where I was just like, you know what? I thought this was a really good idea. And I gave it, I mean, I gave offbeat families 
four years yeah. and, you know, invested over the years, probably $40,000 yeah. and it had a, a solid following, but the following just didn't translate into money. And at a certain point it wasn't worth it anymore, which is, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging, humbling decision to say, Oh, that thing that I did that I thought was going to work out great. Well, in, re- in retrospect, when you look at it, so the, I mean, weddings often have a budget, right? It's, you know, right. we got money, we got family money, we put some of our own money in, we had a set amount. Some people are better at budgeting than others. We right. actually did, we were pretty happy. We did okay. We kept our costs pretty well in line, yeah. but other people may just have a blank checkbook and say, you know, some, somebody's parents are writing the checks and they want right. to spend a hundred thousand dollars on this and whatever. It seems like that's a very distinct thing compared to like, uh, I need a new couch. It, was right. that part of what happened in terms of maybe finding advertisers or right. finding recurring right. readers? You know, with Offbeat Families, it was really interesting to watch because, of course, the initial challenge, which I was anticipating, is that moderating the site was so much more difficult because this isn't, you know, an Offbeat Bride, the biggest controversies we have are, oh, it's tasteless to have a potluck wedding or... Um, oh, okay. Uh, you know, doing a Dia de los Muertos wedding is cultural appropriation. It's sort of like crimes against culture or taste, right? right. Like these are not, or, oh, my mother-in-law is such a hag. Well, that's kind of mean. Oh, my, right. It's, 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 there's a little drama, but it's pretty low. When you talk about families, we get into, you know, vaccination debates, circumcision debates, sleep training debates, oh discipline God. debates, and people are heated. Yeah. Understandably, yeah. these are important, you know, these are life and death decisions yeah. you don't you're walk making. away from this you, the ceremony's not over and you walk away right this is the rest of your life big and um so the moderation overhead was much more challenging than i had expected and the overwhelming feedback i got from readers anytime we tried to do any monetization was not only can i not afford this product that you're talking to me about but it's actually sort of insulting that you suggest i should make a place in my budget for this fascinating but, yeah, this is so, the new york times problem you read the new york times and i think who are the people that occasionally right. they do the budget traveler? The budget traveler thing is sometimes beyond any budget I have. Totally. Right? But totally. The, their basic thing, they're like this, you know, this $1,200 settee. And you're like, who is, who is the New York Times for? Right. But right. so I know you're not working at that scale, but it sounds like you're getting that sort of exactly. feedback. Exactly. Exactly. And there was a certain point where it just wasn't worth it. The, yeah. the, the Any monetization got community pushback. The, the, moderation was taking too much time and just on a personal level, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't, you know, like, Oh God, I had a miscarriage and cried for seven days. That's important. That is important material to have out there. Is it fun to edit that material day after day and week after week after week? It's challenging, especially when it's losing money. So yeah, you don't want formula ads on the miscarriage post right, either. Right, right. So there was a that. lot of sensitivity that had to go into it, and at a certain point, the the costs outweighed the benefits. Yeah. And what's been interesting, I actually just did a post. Um, I have uh, a sort of a fourth website now that's just offbeatempire.com. That's sort of the like small business backroom dealings where I talk about the challenges I'm dealing with and kind of share advice about how I how I deal with tough stuff. And one of the things that came up recently on Offbeat Home was a post, a sponsored post where the first comment was, I can't afford this. And I think it's wasteful that anyone would spend money on this. And I, I, I had to have this moment where I went over to my Offbeat Empire blog and said, okay, you guys, if you have a website out there that is a commercial website that you enjoy and you want to stay online, here's the kind of behavior that will ensure you kill that website. And and I'm not going to say that you should love my website. Right. That's cool if right. you don't like it. But if you do like it, this kind of commenting, this is why people don't sponsor 
this is why offbeat families died basically. So yeah. if, if you enjoy offbeat home and life and you want it to stick around, tread with caution. And I'm not saying a censor yourself and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But if you're invested in a site and want it to stick around, then be mindful of, um, we call it one Lowesmanship. Right, where instead of it's, you know, oh, well, I spent $40,000 on my vacation. Oh, well, I spent sixty. It's, um, you spent $20 on that piece of art. Well, I found some art out by the dumpster out back. So I spent 30 cents. How do you feel? Right, which, is, like- which is awesome, except in that tone, right? It's like, <laughs> I found this great art. It's like, you suck because I found this great art. Right. It's the wrong relationship, right? And I've, I've had conversations with people in written posts on the site where I'm like, ultimately, it's all a form of validation seeking, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is cool. We're yeah. all looking for, for affirmation and validation in different ways. But don't think that I spent less than you, so I'm better than you is any better than I spent more than yeah. you, so I'm better than you. It's it's still ways of you know putting people in a hierarchy that doesn't feel very good to anyone. Well, well I know the Amazon approach of kind of letting all reviews stand is right. interesting because – and I know that they've said uh, – I did an article a few years ago for The Economist where I talked to a bunch of people about reviews because I had – it actually came up from my dad at this question of me and I was like, this is a great pitch, is why does someone leave the 3,000th review of Harry Potter? And I'm like – I don't know. So I asked someone who'd left like the 3009th review. I got in touch with people who had just left reviews and one of them got back to me. I had this terrific, and he's quoted in the article. And, but the thing that was fascinating was talking to all these people is that often having many reviews, even if they're negatives, like Office Depot or Amazon or whatever, it's a good thing because it convinces people that there's a robust conversation going on, Right. but there's a point, right? So did you, have you found a point now where, there can be discussion about a sponsored post. There can be discussion about it where it's relevant and interesting, but it doesn't uh, doesn't diffuse your efforts to actually f- get advertisers involved and fund the site. Yeah, you know, the place where it seems like is a sweet spot is when someone is who has a concern is able to bring up the concern in a way that's not attacking towards the product, someone who likes the product, or the site promoting the product and ask a question that then the business owner or the product owner can come in and answer that question because then it's a win for everyone because the reader gets heard, the product owner or business owner gets some feedback and then they get to show I'm listening to this feedback. So I I feel like there is a, a real sweet spot for even negative product conversations on a commercial website in that it can allow uh, an open dialogue to happen. And that's the old, uh, the clue train manifesto. That was one of their key things many years ago was markets are conversations. Right. And if you buy into that, you can have a conversation. If you're just broadcasting, right. then people don't believe you as much because you're right. talking at, as opposed to talking. Right. And that's, with. that's always the question when sponsored post comment etiquette comes up is, um, well, why don't you just close comments? And the answer is, well, because we want it to be a dialogue and sometimes it's a really amazing dialogue. But just keep in mind that, you know, if you like a website and take a dialogue in a really negative place and that website stops making money because of it, you may not have that website to like anymore, which my my, my thing that I always remind people is if you hate a website, don't read it. Your page views are too valuable. Like don't, oh my gosh. don't hate read a website <laughs> because you're supporting yeah. that website. And let's take a break so I can tell you about this week's indie ads. First, the game Heat. It's a short and simple-to-teach card game that takes about 15 to 30 minutes to play, developed by Dave Chalker, the designer of the award-winning Get Bit. 
In the game, players plan heists while trying to mitigate the effects of their robberies, bringing down the heat on themselves. It's being published by Osmati Games, and it features snazzy, heistish artwork. You can find this on Kickstarter, where they're funding the game, by going to kickstarter.com and searching on Heat Game, or use the short URL bit.ly slash heatkickstart, all one word. We're also supported this week by Andrew Ferguson. This is a 30-second slice of time purchased by Andrew Ferguson. He has no product to sell you, and he has no URL for you to visit. Perhaps you could spend the rest of this time thinking about something pleasant. Thanks to Andrew for that surreal moment with our launch of Indie Ads. And now, back to the program. Well, there, well, so there's these different variables. Let's talk about them since you are an entrepreneur and you're, you've got a, uh, like this medium scale operation. So you're not vast and, and have leagues of, you know, legions right. of ad sales I'm people. No BuzzFeed. Yeah, but you're not, you're not one person. You've got people you work with. You have a right. team of people. Right. So the, there's all these variables of, uh, unique visitors, page views, uh, consummation, people clicking through, people then carrying out some activity and then the community and the feedback on, on what you do and the advertisers reaction to yeah. how a community receives it. How do those things all get managed Yeah, together? boy, it's a great question. And the best part is how it all changes. Mm. I mean, for a long time, a big metric we used for engagement was comments, of course. But now the big challenge is everyone's lazy and leaves their comments on Facebook. Oh, Right? So every one of our posts is syndicated to Facebook, to our yeah. Facebook page. Yeah. It's a significant traffic driver. People don't use RSS anymore. I now know. they use Facebook as their feed reader. And, you know, Facebook automatically syndicates the link and here's a picture. And people don't want to... Most Half the time they don't even click through. They respond to the thumbnail and the headline. So they don't read the thing, of course. <laughs> they don't read the thing. Right. And just leave a comment on Facebook. And I spent a couple years trying to convince people not to do this in every way I could. Oh, your comment's going to get lost on Facebook. It's too valuable to us. We hope we'll, you'll leave the comment on the blog post itself where people will see it. And of course, that's an uphill battle. You can't teach people how to use Facebook differently than how they want to use it. So at a certain point, uh, we've definitely de-emphasized how we use comment counts in mm -hmm. engagement measurements. So now we'll talk more about share counts or page views on the post instead of comments because people don't comment on blogs the way... They were even five years ago. I was shifted. trying to find this post. Oh, I found it while we're talking about the post. Facebook's director of product. Did you see this post from him? No. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, Mike Hudak's his name. A couple days ago, he wrote this post on, on Facebook complaining about the trivialization of news and how everything's become bite-sized and how the trend is pushing things towards these things that are trivial and how some of these major news sites now at the top and everyone's right. like pot, kettle, black, yeah. you know, but, but he doesn't see it because he's inside of it right. and it's right. not – all Facebook, but what you just described that RSS people, I mean, RSS is effectively dead. It depends on the site and technology world. We're still seeing people use it, but Google reader, I think gutted everybody yeah. who wasn't a non, it was not yep. a techie. Yep. Yeah. I've had a little bit of, um, there's a few folks who've migrated over to Feedly. That's mm -hmm. what I'm using, but cool. I really, uh, have spent the last year kind of on this meditation about my, my old school RSS blogger brain where, you know, recent equals God, oh, the newest post is the most important post. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you know what? Actually, it's not about recency. It's about relevancy and people don't, want to read every post. They just want to see the posts that are interesting to them. And for better or worse, 
Facebook's algorithms have either done well or trained everyone that that's what they want. And once I sort of stopped fighting that and started, our Facebook strategy is now the morning is new posts Mm -hmm. and the afternoon is about once an hour links to our greatest hits archived posts. This is brilliant. And the archived posts, our traffic basically just our Facebook traffic doubled and then tripled and then quadrupled. And of course that's just a piece of our, of our traffic pie, Yeah, but, this is but a it ended secret. up being significant. I wish there was a way, there's no audio highlight feature where I could put yellow highlight over what you just said, Yeah, but that's fact. Now I've heard, you know, it re- it's like uh, it's recency versus surfacing and medium, which right. medium.com, which has all kinds of different things they're trying at once. Is it a blog platform that went at the magazine? We were paid to develop content for them for a while. Right. They hired, like, so they've got all kinds of stuff going on, but that seems to be their modus operandi is that they've recognized that surfacing is more important than chronology now. Totally. They're not a blog. They're a site with all kinds of stuff and you don't know when anything was posted. And they say, this is the thing that's most relevant to you right now. Exactly that. It's been hugely educational for me and difficult as a, as a, you know, someone who started blogging in 2000 and kind of came, I've spent 14 years developing this, yeah. like the new post at the top. And I subscribe to RSS. So I always know when there's a new post, new post. And, um, you know, oh, well, if I share old posts on Facebook, people are going to accuse me of spamming or stuffing the ballot box. And especially with the wedding market, the reality is that someone's who's, someone who's engaged in 2014 wasn't reading in 2011 when we did that great post about uh, non-traditional processionals, whatever. So it's new to them. They don't care. And we actually just made the decision a few months ago to remove the years from our date stamps on our posts. So just season, like April 12th. You can still see in the, if you look at the URL and of course a large chunk of the internet doesn't know what a URL is anymore, but anyone who's like, well, wait, when was it written? I was like, well, just look in the URL. You'll see, you know, this is slash 2012 slash 04. So it was written in April of 2012, but ultimately we're not a news site. So it's generally not relevant what year it was written. And what we're seeing more and more from Facebook is that people don't care. They just want what feels relevant to them. And I don't know if Facebook's algorithms have gotten better or if I have just given up the fight and been like, whatever, it's, it's, it, it works. It's working. People well, are really happy. So you have, what's your following on Facebook? Uh, it's about, Offbeat Bride is about 87,000. So that's, that's great. And then, so you probably see this thing. I, I've been talking about this recently and I think this affects, you know, I bring it up on this show, even though it's sort of more about like independence and entrepreneurialism and finding way, but Facebook has become such such a part of everything that people were, it's part of us being independent is we're reliant yep. to some extent on it. And so Maurice McClellan, who's been a previous guest on the show, does a blog called food and jars. She has, I think 147,000 likes on her Facebook page, which is fantastic, right? Yeah. Also it's great. And she has a, she goes, she does very intensive stuff, travels around the country, gives lectures, has books, does remote demos, like all this stuff. She's worked very hard for that. She posted a couple days ago that, that about 80 people, you know, it says this many people saw your post. Like 80 people are seeing recent posts. Ah. And she's like, what am I doing? You know, what is she doing wrong? Yeah. And she's being penalized by Facebook because they want her to advertise, boost your posts, all this stuff. Have you run into that problem as well? Where I mean, I see, you know, 5 or 10%, but out of like 700 on my magazine page, it's a much right. smaller group. 
I know this is an issue that there's so much fear around it that I actually started getting emails from readers saying, mm. I'm seeing these articles about how Facebook is punishing brands and you're not being able to get out there and you're going to have to pay for advertising to yeah. reach anybody. And it's really interesting. I have had the opposite experience. Oh, good. And I, I obviously, we don't know, but I like to think that Facebook is able to differentiate between publishers and brands so that they Facebook wants people using Facebook as an RSS reader. They want news stories on Facebook all day. They don't necessarily want Doritos talking about Doritos. Mm-hmm. So unless Doritos is paying unless them Doritos specifically is paying, right? that it's labeled as sponsored content. And right. Cause I have found the opposite. I had some troubles with my post reach feeling like it wasn't going out as much. And my solution based on something I read from a Facebook developer was just post more. Just post more. And so that was where I kind of got over this reflex of, well, I don't want to spam people and I don't want to post too much. You know, we're now posting eight or 10 times a day. And, Fantastic. Um, and I did a little mini poll to mm-hmm. say, hey, Facebook followers, some of whom don't even know my website exists. Offbeat Bride to them is only this Facebook page. Yeah. Hey, Facebook followers, do you feel like you see too many posts from us a day, not enough posts enough, or just the right amount? And 85% they saw, said they saw just the right amount. Wow. Now that 85% is all being shown a different amount. Yeah, yeah. Right? Some of them are seeing seven posts a day because every single one, they click on it, they read it, they comment. They like it, they share it, so they get to see more. And so to them, that feels right because they like these posts. They want to see seven posts a day. But this is how you're leveraging your size too. Is that right. you're not a big company, but you have a lot of you have a lot of time. Or not actually time to think. Uh, time to think is the best thing in the world. <laughs> but you you're iterating through things because you have to. You're yeah, in a yeah. situation of constraint yep. and uh, budget that's it's going to be very tight. You're not a startup. You're self funded, right? Yeah. So, All bootstrapped. Yeah. So yep. I'm in. The, I've been in the same boot with the current businesses I'm in and other things. And and that forces you, even if you don't want to have the time to think, you're iterating through things. Yeah. And trying things, but these these are all very much uh, ways to leverage your size. The fact that you have nearly 90,000 people right. like you on Facebook, where trying to build that audience and you have 2 million in like January, 2014, you've got 2 million unique visitors, right? right? That's tremendous. That's tremendous. You've leveraged all the specifics in a, in a way that I think demonstrates the power, but also how much we're beholden to other people and the limitations. Absolutely. And I think this has definitely been a hot topic for me this week, especially I'm sure you've seen reading about Metafilter's challenges that they've been having. And of course it's baffling and Metafilter was, you know, it's the site that the backbone of the web was built on for me. It's the standard of good moderation and real content. And I think that the point that gave me pause in that whole story was that they were so dependent on the Google traffic and, and, and as a business owner, I was like, oh god, don't put all your don't put all your eggs in the Google basket. Yeah. You gotta because at any point Facebook's algorithms could change. Google's as MetaFilter has found, Google changed their changed their algorithms, and all of a sudden they're having to lay people off. So for me, my goal has always been like when um the rise of Pinterest, which of course in the wedding industry is huge. Yes. And and all of a sudden, year over year, between 2011 and 2012, my traffic was up 80% just because of Pinterest. I was like, okay, let's pay attention to this, but I can't get reliant on it because if it showed up in a year, it could be gone in a year. It could crash and burn. I want to mention so, Pinterest is a really interesting example because one of the it's one of the most distinctly like gender interpreted sites that I think has ever come up on the internet that's reached any scale. And when it first came up, it was totally off my radar. I'm this techie guy off my radar. Then I start seeing 
all the women I know talking about it, none of the men. Then I see the men making fun of it because men make fun of things that women do, yeah. right? If they do right. something technical and you're like, and I start, you know, pushing back like, yeah, that's hilarious. Do you know how many visitors they got? Do you know yeah. what kind of engagement they have? Do you know what they've done at this site? They've cracked a code that your little sites haven't done. Totally. And then I've seen that go, finally, people sort of, oh, okay, right. this is a real thing. And now I think, I forget the participation of men there. It's still dominated by women, but it's no longer like 90, 10 or whatever yeah. it was. It's probably 40% men or 30% men, but it still has that perception of a place where people go to pin dresses. And yeah. it's not. It's got yeah. so many things there. Well, and did you see there was some really interesting articles done, I want to say, uh, early last year or maybe in late 2012 about the gender difference in the US versus the UK. Oh, no. That's and, interesting. And in the UK, it was all like... Uh, venture capitalist dudes using Pinterest. <laughs> and of course, that's a much smaller, right? The UK is much smaller than the US. So, but, but the percentages were just it, in, in the UK, at least initially, I'm sure at this point, the, the, the focus has overtaken the initial use of right. the site, but at least in the UK, it was a dude site. It was a site that dudes were using. But so this is speaking of dude sites too. I mean, this is where like Reddit and other sites come into play too, is you don't want to get too dependent on other things as sources of traffic. But right. for some people, cartoonists, I know if they can make sure that their link is put in there, the original right. cartoon, a Reddit post could mean a hundred thousand people coming to their site Absolutely. in a day. And it's made careers like the oatmeal was made partly because he kept getting discovered again and again at Reddit. Yep. And was like there. And same thing if Pinterest or Facebook winds up driving, but then, right, you get too dependent, they change an algorithm and suddenly, where is your business yeah, the next day? It's really, I think part of the fun of a, of a, of working on the web, of course, I want to say as a web publisher, but any web content creator, um, is that things are always changing and that can be terrifying. You know, reading about Metafilter was certainly very sobering and terrifying, but it can also be exciting. It meant that when Pinterest launched, uh, personally didn't have any interest in it, but it was immediately clear, oh, this is going to be a really big yeah. deal. And it sort of forced me to get into it and start exploring it. And so in some ways, I mean, I'm hitting my late thirties now, my, my organic, need to seek out novelty and be like, oh, new toy, shiny, play with it is, you know, it's not as quite as exciting as it was maybe 10 years ago to find a new toy and fiddle with it. Yeah. So I actually really appreciate that my work online sort of forces me to play with all the shiny new toys because this shiny new toy might be the future of 40% of my traffic. Let me take a quick break to tell you about something you could do to help us at The New Disruptors. If, if you take this short anonymous survey that will take no more than five minutes to complete, this will help us. Your answers help us match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibility of our listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey are entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to www.podsurvey.com slash disrupt. That's www.podsurvey.com slash disrupt to take our survey, help us find our advertisers, and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thanks so much for your time. And now back to the podcast. All of my young friends on Twitter suddenly start talking about Tapa Talk, and I have no idea what it is. I go to the site, and I still can't figure it out. Like, all right, I know That's I'm old. That's how you know it's good. Jeez. I mean, <laughs> it's like industrial music to my ears. I don't know what this means. Uh, I want to bring up an issue about advertising, as we were talking about kind of site and traffic and, and funding and all that, is something interesting came up this week, in fact, just before we talked, which I thought was a great example of that balance, is the rebar uh, in, uh, is it Brooklyn? Oh, boy. This was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. You pointed to it on Twitter, and I read the whole thing 
and follow the links. And this, what a so what a conflict, and also how well you've great moderators, how well resolved. So so what was? And I know I should preface this to make sure we're being all correctly legal. So there's someone in Brooklyn has been alleged to do certain things. Right. So nothing's right. been proven. Someone's been arrested, has been charged, released on bail. So we'll preface right. it with that. But what was the situation so with this venue? There was a venue in Brooklyn that was a bar and event space that specialized uh, in hosting weddings, among other things. Uh, they were listed in our vendor guide. They purchased mm-hmm. a, a vendor listing and um, had done relatively well for the last few months. We're very clear that we're not liable for the performance of our vendors and that it's paid content and yada yada. But uh, about a month ago, the venue shut down with no warning at all. The staff was excused with no advance notice or final paycheck. And of course there were people booked for weddings and other events there, but weddings for the next two and a half years. This is New York. And people had put in tens of thousands of dollars in deposits that just disappeared. So now there's this pending investigation and criminal charges. Taxes alleged. It's It's crazy. It's a real messy situation. And I heard about it initially because a Facebook follower emailed me to say, oh wow, this venue shut down in New York and all these people lost their deposits. You guys should do an article about it. And I was like, well, that's sad, but it happens all the time. That's why wedding insurance exists is because this happens. Which I'd never heard of, by the way, until this puzzle. It makes total sense. So, so companies do come and go. Yeah. And I did not realize at the time that they were a former vendor of ours. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, yeah, this happens. It sucks. And then we ran a profile of a couple that had their wedding there. I didn't have a chance to edit this particular post, so I had not seen this. So we had a missed editorial connection where I knew this place had gone out of business. My editor, one of my editors promoted or publicized a a wedding that had happened there. I should say that it was a wonderful account. The photos were neat. The cake. Go, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a cake inspector. It was, it was hilarious. It was like beautiful. Totally. Right. So that's nice too, though. And we did note in the post that, you know, the wedding happened at Rebar is the name of the space. And we put in parentheses, now closed. Right. Uh, again, this was an editorial miscommunication that one of us knew it had been closed. One of us didn't. One of us knew that it was a vendor that was listed in our guide. It was, it was, it was an editorial miscommunication that, that we didn't handle as well as we could have. So in the comments, it came up quickly. Oh, it's so sad this place went out of business. Oh, yeah, it is sad uh, you know isn't it nice that this wedding got to happen there and there's people who are supporting the couples and fundraising and blah 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 so there was a good conversation that had happened but then a reader came in username come on <laughs> <laughs> and basically said i can't believe this has been in the news nonstop, and you guys decided to publish this wedding anyway yeah. that's totally tasteless for a site that considers itself to have more integrity i can't believe you guys did this um did you publish this just because they were in your vendor guide mm. Which is a pretty, uh, you know, that's a that's an accusation I take seriously yeah. and really definitely needed to be addressed, but also doesn't quite make sense. If yeah, we, they're out of business. They can't pay you any more money. How would we benefit from promoting someone who went out of <laughs> right. business? Um, if anything, it just makes us look bad. And like we had an editorial miscommunication, yeah, which we did. Yeah, but you um, admit it. Right. So uh, my, the managing editor of the site, who's also my associate publisher, came in and just left this very sweet, this is actually something we're working on across the whole company of first acknowledging, yeah, we made a mistake here. We probably mm-hmm. should have handled this better in terms of how we communicated the space closing. So I've edited the post to include some links. That said, we didn't think it was fair to punish this couple for the fact yeah. that this place went out of business. It's a beautiful wedding. 
And, and I loved how she said this. She was like, and business real talk, we didn't have anything to gain from this. Right. So, which, you know, we didn't want to get into, I think with an apology, when you're dealing with an an unhappy reader or customer of any kind, you don't ever want an apology to feel like it's full of excuses or, and we didn't get into, oh, we had an editorial miscommunication and we were just like, you're right. We didn't handle this. Great. Here's why we ran it anyway. And can we say, what did we stand to benefit? Like, I see that you're getting kind of in a like, oh, offbeat bride is just trying to make money. How would we make money from this? And the best part, though, is then then come on, her follow-up or his follow-up, I think it was a female avatar, said, oh, that's great. Thank you. And it was like, oh, my God, this is the ultimate response is when somebody's so angry and you provide a totally reasonable, like – totally get it. Here's the deal. And we're not making money off this. They're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. And you're like, Oh, that's the ultimate. We had a, I have a, a colleague who I call my rage sponsor. <laughs> he does a lot of, uh, in his own personal life, he does a lot. He's a former oh, educator man. who worked with high school kids. He's from a family of lawyers. He does a lot of mediation. And so he's the person I call when I'm just so <laughs> angry about oh a God. complaint that's come in. And he described this kind of turnaround where someone comes at you with vitriol, and an accusation and, you know, harsh language. Come on, tasteless. Blah, you think you have integrity. And you come back to them with so much respect. I love the way that Megan, my my editor, referred to them using the username. Well, hey, come on. You know, <laughs> I'm going to, even though you spoke to me like an angry 12-year-old, I'm going to speak to you with respect yeah. and honesty. I'm going to admit where we made a mistake. I'm going to let you know we've corrected it. My rage sponsor calls it alchemy. And I yes. feel like it is, you know, I have a four-year-old at home and we're working a lot on apologies as just a concept of what a good apology looks like and how to apologize well. And I feel like this is one of those things that it's a lesson that you never stop learning is how to apologize in a way that says, you know, I hear your concern. I understand what we did wrong. Here's what I'm going to try and do to fix it. And do you forgive me? Is that okay? Are we okay now? And, um, it doesn't always work out, but oh man, that comment thread was a great example of, of it working out. I've got a seven or nine year old tonight and we work on this still, of course, as you work out your whole soul, working on it at 46 totally and uh we realized that the other day we're like oh here's the thing if you apologize and you say but or just afterward it's not an apology it's not an you apology. say i'm sorry i did that and then all the other stuff like there can be mitigating circ- all whatever but you turn to someone you look in the eye and say i'm sorry i did that i'm sorry you feel bad yep and then you get to later or you can whatever or we understand but like if you don't do that part, if yep. you say but, then you're that's not the apology. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And I, I actually just went through this a week ago with a woman who wrote to me hugely upset because I'd used one of her wedding photos without permission. Oh. And I tend to be obsessive about attribution and credit. And, you know, we only alter images that are Creative Commons licensed for commercial yeah. use and alter. I mean, we're just we're really fastidious about this mm-hmm. stuff. And I made a mistake. Totally just made a mistake. And I immediately apologized to her, corrected the mistake, you know, apologized to her publicly in two different places. In my email, however, I did in the email my saying, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry about this. It was an honest mistake. Mm-hmm. But I owe you a personal apology. Yeah. And because I think because I had that one point of saying it was an honest mistake. Yeah. She was like, you know what? That's not good enough. I need you to write an entire blog post about how sorry uh... you are. And um, I did. <laughs> Because at that point, I was just like, you know what? This was my screw up. And I, I'm, you know. Imagine if you worked at BuzzFeed. You'd be writing 50,000 of those a day. Well, and what that's when, whenever people get into image rights complaints and issues, I'm just like, have you seen BuzzFeed? The rest of the internet. Although they've gotten better, too. We ran an article in the magazine about this uh, 
gosh, a year ago because we felt like we were hearing this complaint all the time. Yeah. And the tricky part is they are clever enough that a lot of what they do could conceivably be under fair use right. because they aggregate and they annotate. And you're like, oh, you shake your fist. Like, but still, but you're you're making I try to make that good faith effort too. I'm always right. is it creative commons, is it licensed? Even if it's creative commons, if I feel like there's any question about usage and you write the person, which right. you do right, and you say, right. Look, I know you've licensed this way, but I just want to make extra sure because there's a, a recognizable person in it, or I don't yeah. know there's a baby in it or whatever. Yeah. And I know other people might use it without that, but I want, you know, so you try to do everything right. But yeah, that's right. That's right. That was good of you. So you did. You took the mea culpa from oh, I, I totally took the punch on that one. And I did shape the post to be uh, not just an apology, but here's what you should do if you ever see a, po- a photo on any of our sites yeah. that shouldn't be there. Yeah. So I tried to make it sort of generally useful. You know, here's the steps we take to try and only use approved images. Here's some of the mistakes that can happen. A mistake recently happened. Happened, and I am so Rosie. I'm so sorry. Like, and and uh, she was, better, right. as soon as she saw that post, she was like, "Thank you so much. This shows a lot of integrity." Yeah. Blah blah blah. No one else seemed to care about the post, but it's a generally useful post to have out there in general. It's good. Well, it's it's good too because I think um, when you see things like history pics and all these Twitter right. accounts out that are right. that are appropriating, but also misrepresenting so much, like they're actually getting the history wrong. Right. This is Nikola Tesla in a bathing suit. It's like no, it's just a guy who looks like him. He was never a swimming instructor. It's a photo from the wrong year. And you're like, oh, so like there's something about accuracy. Like you're actually sourcing your images. You're not just using random stuff. You know where it came from. You know you have permission. Yep. The photographer has acceded either by giving licenses over Creative Commons. And, yep. and that kind of permission I think goes a long way, especially when you're a small it's important. business person. You, so you've got this staff all over the place. We talked at the outset that you've got people across three time zones at least. Yep. And uh, no, no central office. There's nobody else in Seattle so you're in Seattle who works with you. Everyone no. you work with really. So what are some techniques you use to keep people together? You do like video, do you Google Hangouts? And I mean, how do you get everyone on the same page? Yeah, we do a weekly Google Hangout every Friday morning. I just had it this morning, actually, where it's mostly editorial focused, where half we're talking about, oh, here are the posts that are coming up, but half we're just gossiping and catching up. and The water kinda... cooler stuff. Exactly. Exactly. We also do a lot of IMing. And uh, in years past, this is the first year actually in several years that I haven't done an annual staff retreat where my mom lives out on Bainbridge Island where she runs this little hippie eco retreat called Sacred Grove. Right on. So my staffers, who of course are not Pacific Northwest raised by the hippies yeah. like Megan I am. A, Megan is in Hollywood, isn't she? Yeah, I think yeah, I no. So, so right. I have, you know, I have, I have my LA based staffer <laughs> who, uh, you know, lives in, in West Hollywood and literally at an offbeat empire staff retreat two years ago, uh, reported that for the first time ever, she was picking a vegetable and eating it. That she had never, you know, my mom was like, here, take a basket, go get some kale. Oh, and she was like, oh, you can pick food and eat it. Oh, so I've tried to do a staff retreat every year this year. It, it wasn't in the financial carts, but, yeah. uh, we try and have face-to-face meetups once a year-ish, and there's a lot. We don't do phones. None of us like phones, but there's a lot of IM and a lot of email, mm-hmm. and then, of course, we're all on social media, so there's a lot of social media banter, and uh, it, it's actually been, I think, you know, those of us who adapt well to working from home on a certain level are sort of a, a quirky bunch and maybe a little, in some ways, antisocial, so... um 
I mean, very communicative, but antisocial. It's a, it's a weird yeah. thing. I've met so many introverts on Twitter. I mean, now that the cycles, I've been on Twitter long enough that now I've met a ton of people. I've only known some very dear friends from Twitter I finally met in real life, sometimes after years of knowing them. Yep. And I'm like, oh, you're a severe introvert in person. On Twitter, you get to pick and choose how you communicate when, when you need to, and, and you don't have to be in someone's face. Totally. And that's like, so you get a whole new crowd of people you never yep. would have met before. Yep. Well, and I will admit that I've had, when I was actually in New York on a business trip a few months ago and I was visiting the corporate offices of WeWork, right? Mm -hmm. This um, co-working, national co-working company where a friend of mine works and I'm sitting in the cafe and I'm watching all these people meeting and talking and I'd spent a couple hours earlier that day visiting some friends at little publishing companies around Soma and and I, uh, my uh, associate publisher pops up on IM just saying, oh, hey, you know, how's New York going? Blah, blah, blah. Do you want to see the posts that are going up next week? And I uh, was overcome with emotion at how sad it was that I was never in the same room with these people. You know, I'm watching these people co-working in front of me and I've been in these offices all day. Everyone's, there's an actual water cooler. And so I started typing to my, my associate publisher saying, I'm just really sad that I really like you guys. And we never, you know, I see you maybe once a year and I, I, it's just sort of sad. And her response, she's uh, a little fabulously accurate at times. Her response was, bitch, you know, if we worked in the same place, we would drive each other crazy. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. That's so perfect. And I was like, well, this is the woman who likes doing her editorial work, sitting in front of a big screen TV, watching reality shows. I'm like, that would kill me. I would, it would kill me. And then I would come and kill you because that sounds so irritating. I do not work that way. You figured out the ideal separation, but you know, this is, I I just want to, the coworking thing is interesting. So we're in, we work, we're recording this in, we work right now in Seattle and you, use office nomads yep. regularly. Yep. And, and I was thinking that like without, like I'm working in my basement right now and I've been working in my basement a little too long. Yep. I had, I had uh, in a uh, formal co-working space with other collaborators and freelancers for years that we just rented space and we're together. And I'm about, I think to go into co-working almost full time because I can't take the, uh, like Twitter is my primary communication during the day and it's like oh man i need more human interaction but so you found this for your and your coworkers, these the folks that you've contracted with and work with uh around uh us and canada are how many of them are in co-working or or they all work at home they all either work at home Mm -hmm. or have day jobs and so are only working like very part-time so they do get that interaction right so they get their their via their day job but most of my staff who are working kind of more full-time for me contracting full-time for me they're at home no one Mm -hmm. else is i guess i must be the most extroverted of my staff because i started especially you know i I went full-time with self-employment and small business ownership fall of 2009 which is when my son was born Mm -hmm. so i'm dealing with the isolation of an infant and then just you know baby and toddler and getting out of the house having for the first couple years it was every monday i would go to office nomads that was like my temple of the whole week Mm -hmm. was monday is the day that i take a shower in the morning and put on grown-up clothes like a grown-up person and walk out the door and leave the house for yeah. eight hours. And um, it felt more than just, oh, this, you know, this is a good thing. It yeah. felt therapeutic. Yeah. It felt sanity saving. And in some ways established the sustainability of self-employment for me. I tried being a freelancer in years before and always burned out after six, 12, 18 months because the isolation was mm-hmm. just too much. It's, it's, um, it's significant. I love working on the web and that we can work anywhere we want to, but it, it creates its own challenges. 
Well, let me ask you one last thing, which is sort of related to some of this, I think, and some of the things we've been talking about is, I think it's especially related to something like uh, like Metafelter, is I wonder about whether unique points in time when we could start businesses like this. Like I'm dealing with this with my uh, publication right now. Like mm. maybe when it was started was the right time. Could I do it today? I'm not sure. Metafilter, could Metafilter start today? Forget even attention, like just pulling something like that together. Could you start what you did today or is is it changed so much? If you hadn't built up what you've done over the last few years, you couldn't proceed from where you're at. Yeah, no. What I've what I have started in no way could be started now. And if yeah. you if I was doing it now, yeah. I would launch it. It would be all. It would probably be hosted on Tumblr where sharing mm-hmm. is built in. It would be completely integrated from the beginning with Facebook. There would be a massive Instagram. Like it would be so socially focused. Of course, I I love that. Social is just part of my strategy because yeah. it means that I own the content and I own the platform and yada, yada. But I don't think that is something that would be as effective these days or um, effective or smart. If you're, if I was bootstrapping a business from scratch, mm-hmm. I think I would probably start it on social media. The fact that people following me on Facebook literally do not understand that there's a website. Yeah. Offbeat Bride to them is not a website. It's this cool Facebook page that has links that sometimes they go read the links. I don't think they ever, sometimes they go read the links. Sometimes they don't. I, I you know, people really, the whole concept of outside of my walled garden mm-hmm. is starting to be foreign to some parts of the internet. So, um, I mean, of course, you know, any small business owner wants to say like, oh, you couldn't do what I'm doing now. But I'm, I, and I don't say that in a way from. You're not an old crank. Don't worry. Well, and, 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 and I guess what I'm saying is you could try, but it wouldn't work because in some ways I'm an old dinosaur, like yeah. a blog with categories and taxonomies and tags. And I'm like, why don't people use my navigation? Because they want a listicle yeah. that gives them pictures to click. They don't want to go look at my drop down menu about the different subcategories. Oh, here's the category. And then when you hover over that part of the menu, some subcategories drop down so you can navigate. No, even searching the website is too much work for them. They want a listicle that they saw on Facebook that they click. It's easy to get cynical, I think, about this. But ultimately, if you make your living on the web, this has to be part of the fun is adapting. And I guess people are navigating via listicle and Facebook now. Okay. If that's can, where you find the – because you're trying to find ultimately the goal for you and for most entre- – I mean for most people in like your shoes or my shoes, most of us creating some kind of thing that needs an audience where we're not creating it out of the pure joy and love of expression. We don't care if right. anyone cares. Maybe right. someone buys it for $25 million after we're dead. Right. <laughs> like, right. We need an audience and we're trying to find the audience and right. you're, it's, you're adaptive. But it's fascinating that you're, you would start because you know you're, you wouldn't find your audience today from a blog. And I know – I mean I, you know, career of Kate Beaton, I'd love to have her on the show. Does Hark a Vagrant that uh, – Oh, yeah, comic. Yeah. And she yep. came from nowhere. I mean, you know, this is that overnight success after 10 years is she'd been drawing, but she really did come from not having any stable strip or production within a few months of becoming very, you know, highly in a matter of tension. And then a few months after that, a New York Times bestseller. Right. And she's clearly totally appreciative of how crazy that is. But she started because she's young and because she started, it was like, I think she was posting images on Facebook. Right. And then someone's like, you should have a Tumblr. So then it was a Tumblr. The website was like the last thing. Exactly. And then the book like came after that. And you're like, it's a total, I can't think that way. I think about a blog. And I was, we were, weren't we so cutting edge when blog, we're like, ooh, blogs. We're so ahead of the, oh, I don't understand any of this stuff anymore. Yeah, no, it's really, um, again, there's a lot of fear that I think can get wrapped up in this. And that was the, like when the meta filter news came up this week, of course I had this clutch of like, oh my God, the, yeah, web, yeah. the web as I know it is dying. But really, I think you have to sort of turn that and and just 
love the joy of riding the waves of how the web changes yeah. and that's it's it can be exciting it and crash, yeah, it crashes and, down I, mean, I have this thing that's like every 18 months I have to reinvent my career I'm a freelance writer but I also do websites I do programming yep. it's tiring it's exhausting yep. but it's also we keep getting to find and do right. new things it's exciting there's always yeah. new toys to play with that's right <laughs> well thank you so much for being on the podcast delight to have you on thank you so much for having me you can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.